We'll be reading this evening from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, considering John's uh, words to the church. I think we'll find that they're comforting words. They come from a pastoral heart. John's deep concern for this church that he's writing to amidst their circumstances, his desire that they would be encouraged in the certainty of their faith, as well as um, exhorted to turn from the desires of the flesh and all their allurement. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, whose Spirit now dwells in our hearts, giving us eyes to see and, uh, and ears to hear. And we ask uh, that you would bless the teaching of your word this evening, that you would cause it to encourage us, that you would cause, us, cause it to lift up our hearts, and that you would uh, lead it uh, throughout this week to have the effect that we might not cling to that which is desirable in earth that we find and stands against you, but we might cling to the cross of Christ and keep our eyes fixed firmly on the time when we will abide with you uh, in perfect paradise. For we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were to survey the religious narratives of our day, both in the church and outside of it, you would find that there are many different versions of Jesus and many different versions of the Christian life. There are many different versions of Jesus and many different versions of the Christian life. You have Mormons who deny the deity of Christ. Catholics, I think we're fair to say, have a different Jesus because he requires different things in order to be saved, different things to be done to receive his grace. Even within Protestantism, even within evangelicalism, uh, there are numerous different uh, versions of Jesus. You have the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You have a therapeutic Christ who helps you discover your true self and delivers you from the darkness of human life to be the freest and the happiest you. You have Jesus who only makes salvation possible but not certain. You have Jesus who either requires or does not require you to obey his law uh, to earn salvation. And you have the Jesus of German Protestant liberalism. It doesn't matter if he actually existed. It's just the Jesus of faith. Who cares if he was raised from the dead? So there are, there are really very many different versions of Jesus even today. Heresy is rampant. And this isn't far off from the context of John's letter where there were those in this church or in this community that denied the deity of Christ. They deny the necessity of an upright life in accordance with God's law as the product of what God's Spirit has accomplished in our hearts. In fact, they say they have no sin or they deny the need for them to grow in obedience. 
And so John's purpose in writing the whole of this letter is for the benefit and the encouragement of his audience to correct a very dangerous doctrine that was pervading these communities. And he wants to affirm that what these believers, at least in our text today especially, he wants to affirm that what these believers believe is correct, and he wants to encourage them in this. Here in verse 12 to 17, he wants to encourage them amidst all the confusion, and and it's quite confusing. When you start considering all the different things that people are teaching about Jesus, so he wants to encourage them amidst all, all the confusion and provide clarity for them of how to move forward in the future. And so you really get a sense, especially in our passage, in these five verses, of John's pastoral heart throughout the letter. Amidst these confusing and trying times, you have John address his, his, this congregation in, a dear, in, an, in an endearing manner and in a repetitive, uh, repetitive structure so that it's something they might remember as they go home. We recall that New Testament letters weren't handed out one by one, a copy of each to each of the, each of the members of a congregation. They were read aloud. So if anything they might remember as they go home into the week, they might remember this section where John says, my little children, I'm writing to you. Fathers, I'm writing to you. Young men, I'm writing to you. My little children, fathers, young men, again. And so that the heart of what John is trying to communicate is this, this evening. Because you have been reconciled to God. Do not love the world or the things in the world, but abide in the Father and take hope in what is to come. We're going to look at this in three ways. Verse 12 to 14 is the confirmation given. Verse 15 to 16 is the command stated. And verse 17 is the consolation offered. Confirmation, command, consolation. Excuse me, confirmation, command, consolation. We're going to cover the confirmation given in three questions this evening. Who is John speaking to? What does he say to them? And why does he say it? First then, who is John speaking to? Now this could be a little bit confusing at first. You wonder why has John addressed each group three times? Why does he say the same thing to the fathers twice? Well, John addresses uh, uh, these groups for a particular reason, and he's not excluding mothers. He's not excluding young men like myself who are uh, maybe not 12 to 14, but are certainly not fathers, and he's not excluding either uh, uh, young women. Rather, uh, when John uses the term little children, a term that he uses six other times in the letter of 1 John, he's addressing all the original recipients of the letter. Jesus also uses this term in John 13, verse 33. He says, children, yet a little while longer I am with you, you will seek, and just as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus in this chapter then proceeds to tell the apostles of the gifting of the Spirit in his soon-to-be absence. And so Jesus, in the same way that John uses the term little children, addresses those whom he loves in, in, in this endearing fashion before telling them something that is of great comfort to them. And so the usage of little children implies a certain kind of paternal intimacy The person employing this term feels a sense of responsibility, a deep care for his audience. He feels responsible for them. But it also conveys something that may be to the comfort of the audience, of those who are hearing these words. So fathers and young men then, who are they? 
We've covered that John is addressing everyone first, but why does he then turn to fathers and young men? Well, here John is using metaphorical and figurative language. It's not simply young men or older men with children, but fathers is a reference to those older in their faith, those who are seasoned in their walk and knowledgeable about the gospel of Christ and its implications for their life. Young men here refer to the people younger in their faith, those who have just begun developing in their knowledge of the glories of the riches of God and His grace to them. And so in some, he's not just addressing toddlers or young males or just fathers, but John is addressing everyone in his audience, and then he specifically addresses his particular words to those who are mature in their faith and those who are just beginning their walk. Now, what does he say to them? Our second question. To everyone, that is the children. He says, your sins have been forgiven and you have known the Father. Your sins have been forgiven and you have known the Father. Though this is past tense in English, it conveys a sense of persistence into the present. It has present impact on the believer's lives. In other words, it's not that they believed in the past and they don't believe anymore, but they continue to believe in this fact. And we wonder, in whose name do they have the forgiveness of their sins? In whose name do they have this forgiveness? Well, the name that the apostles in in 1 John chapter 1, 1 says, the name that they saw, that they heard, that they touched, that they've seen, and that they testified to them about. It is at this name, the name of Jesus, it represents both His person and His work. Acts 4.12 says, To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus every knee, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there is power in this name, but there is also forgiveness in this name. And it's in this name that we pray each and every time that we turn to the Father to confess our needs to Him or to speak with Him and give thanks or praise His mighty name. It's through this name that we actually come into a right relationship with the Father. It's in His name that we become children of the Almighty Father. And so the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ necessarily entails that we are also brought into a right relationship with the Father. As John says, he says, because you know Excuse me, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And he goes on to say, I write to you, children, because you have known the Father. He combines these two things. There's a certain unity between them. The relationship that we have with this Father is not a punitive relationship. It's not one where we're deserving of punishment any longer. Rather, it's characterized by loving and tender care because our sin has been paid for. Not only has our sin been paid for, but righteousness has been merited in our stead, that we don't stand before the Father in a state of debt. We don't stand before the Father neither in a state of punishment, but even the right relationship that's required, the obedience that puts us into a positive relationship, has been given by Christ. And so it comes with the name of Jesus that you're in a right relationship with this Father. The prophet Jeremiah bears witness to this as well. Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. John 14, If you had known me, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and you have seen him. 
John 8, 19, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have also known my father. John 10, 30 says, I and the father are one. If you know Jesus, you know the father. He's not this invisible force that didn't actually come in history, as German Protestant liberalism says. He's not the Mormon of Je- the, the Jesus Mormon. He's the Jesus that the apostles came in chapter 1, verse 1 of this same letter that they saw, that they touched, that they testified about. He came in the flesh. Children, that is everyone here. Not only do you have forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name, but through him you have also known the Father. You have seen the Father. And what does it mean to have a father? Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now what is a father, dear Christian, but a provider, a caretaker, an ever-present foundation to fall back on when you're in trouble? You know, as we think on our own experiences as young children, when you're young and you go across the street, you hold your father's hand to protect you and to guide you across that dangerous path. You look to him when you feel danger from an outside threat. Not only do you look to him when you feel danger, but oftentimes we don't even sense that danger. I'm reminded of, uh, as I was writing the sermon at least, I was reminded of America's Funniest Videos. I'm sure you've all seen some of the videos of fathers who have Uh, instantaneous reflexes, catching their child as they fall from the couch onto a hardwood floor, catching their child who's somehow flung out of the swing or flung off the merry-go-round or whatever it may be. That's the kind of protection and care we have from the Father when we don't even sense the danger He's there to catch us when we fall. This is whom you have known and is nothing less than the benefit that you have through the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus' name. It is a Father who will deliver you from certain peril. So we have a Spirit who cries out with us as sons. Father. A Father who cares, who loves, who has pardoned our iniquity. John isn't unclear here. To comfort a church during a trying time, he reminds them all Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, and you have known the Father. My little children whom I care for know this fact. Now to the fathers, that is the spiritually mature, he he says that they've known him who is from the beginning, and he says it twice. Again, it's a past tense verb with present implication in the believer's life. They didn't just know in the past, but even today, to this present day, they know the one who is from the beginning. And so once again, it's a pronouncement and a confirmation of their faith. It's true. It's the right kind of faith. It's unlike the false teachers of their day because it calls their audience back to that which was from the beginning, which we heard and we saw and we touched and we testified to you about. The one who John testifies to in his gospel, the eternal word who took on flesh and dwelt among us, It's not just a surface-level knowledge simply familiar with what Christ did in His advent, but it recognizes all of God's faithful work in keeping His covenant promises to His children from before the foundations of the world, the one who was from the beginning. 
Moses in Psalm 90 writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 139 comments again and again of how he knit us together in our, in our mother's wombs. He knew each and every day that was before us as yet bef- when there were none of them. It's not a new developing faith, but it perceives in faith and it understands God's work in all of redemptive history. This is what your faith is like. You understand Christ's work even from the beginning. The covenant of redemption that God made with himself before the foundations of the world in in the three persons of the Trinity to redeem fallen man. You understand that truth, that there's nothing that can separate you from that love. To young men, that is the spiritually young. He says, you are strong and you have overcome the evil one and the word of God abides in you. Certainly, by the way, if this is true for the young men, this is also true for those who are mature in their faith. Ephesians 6.10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How are you strong, young Christian? Because the word of God abides in you. Consider Psalm 119, which says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might, sin, that might not sin against you. You are strong, young believer, not because of anything in and of yourself, no power that you possess, but because the Lord enables you through the word which abides in your heart. But it doesn't stop here. He writes, you have overcome the evil one by virtue of Christ's victory. By virtue of Christ's victory in crushing the head of the, of the serpent, the young in their faith are already in a conquest against the devil that they experience victory in, in, in with Christ. Sin, therefore, has no power over you. You are not helpless, young believer, in your struggles against this world. And so we wonder what more comfort what more comfort could be given to those who are young in their faith than learning about the depth of their, uh, as they're learning rather, about the depth of their sin and growing in their faith? What more comfort could be given to those who are struggling in the beginning of their spiritual battle against the sin that so easily entangles? No more comfort, no more comfort could be given than to be, than to be reminded that God is their refuge and their strength whose word dwells in their hearts by his spirit and who with Christ are already experiencing cosmic victory over the devil. Remember that you are strong. So if you want to talk about empowerment, if you want to talk about encouragement, young believers, you are not alone. All believers, you're not alone. You're not helpless. Rather, the word of God abides in your heart. You are already victors over the wicked one who has no place in your heart, for it is there in your heart that the word of God dwells instead. We could take a moment to talk about what John's going to address in a minute here. When the word of God abides in our hearts, when that is what we feed our hearts, that is what will direct our affections and our desires. If we are not careful to guard against and to remember the victory that we have in Christ, that we've overcome the evil one and that God's word abides in us, then what will start to take root in our heart like weeds is the desires of the flesh, the pride of possessions, and the pride of life. 
And when we go to rip that out, it will leave holes in our hearts that leave us maimed from the consequences of our sin. So we must be careful to remember our victory with Christ and to remember that His Word abides in our heart and to be careful also to all our days, meditate on it day and night, that we might be like, streams, or like trees planted by streams of water that yield fruit in its season and whose leaves do not wither or fade. Why then? Why does John write these things? What spurs him to offer these encouraging words confirming the virtue of these believers' faith? Well, in light of the schisms and the false teachings concerning Christ and the Christian life, John is concerned to affirm what is true and to encourage those believers who believe that which is true in the way that they should go. And so to speak to this, he begins by saying in the opening of, le- of his letter that that which was from the beginning which we heard and we saw and we touched and we testified to you about, the eternal word really indeed did come in the flesh. Here is a concrete reminder to ground your faith. In other words, your right to believe these things about Christ. Be encouraged and continue to hold on to that confession, to that testimony, by the way, which is a confession we just uttered together in the words of the Apostles' Creed, the testimony about what Christ came and did in the flesh. But he doesn't stop here at Christ. He continues uh, to direct their lives. He says, whoever hates his brother, in the, in the verses previous to our passage today, he says the following, whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, you might imagine that upon hearing something like this uh, in in the verses prior to our passage today, uh, there would be those who are worried that they were actually guilty of this indictment. There would be those who thought of themselves, perhaps I have hated my brother in this way. Perhaps I'm dwelling in darkness. I think we ourselves, when we hear such a verse as that, are guilty of, uh, of, of falling into that temptation to doubt whether or not we're walking in the light. Lord's Day 40, as well as uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, reminds us that murder is not just the physical killing of, of another man, but hate in our hearts. Are we guilty of that kind of hate and, and murder in our hearts, such that we, it might be said we dwell in darkness? Are we walking in the light? Do we believe in that which we heard and we saw and we testified, uh, excuse me, in which they heard and they saw and they testified to us about? And so in a world where heresy regarding Christ and the Christian life is rampant, you can say firmly, amidst John's declaration to you, do you believe, I believe in that which they heard and they saw and they testified to us about, that this one did indeed come in the flesh, that he did indeed uh, die on the cross for my sins, rendering up his perfect obedience as a ransom for my soul that I might be made right with the Father and ascending into heaven, he now sits at the right hand interceding on my behalf. If you can say that, if you can confess that boldly, then you receive John's confirmation this evening. It's his confidence expressed in this portion of the letter. But John does not just leave them there with this confirmation. He he goes on to give them a direction for how they ought to live. He commands their lives uh, from here on out. Now, he does this uh, for, the, uh, for those above for two reasons that we... St- um, he, he does this for two reasons, uh, two of which we stated earlier, that he wants, to, uh, he wants to affirm what is true and he wants to encourage them to continue to believe what is true and direct their way. But we could add another aspect as he directs their lives, 
John's aware of the weakness of human flesh, the gravity-like pull of our hearts towards sin. As B.B. Warfield writes, we are still prey to temptation. We still fall into sin. We still suffer sickness, sorrow, death itself. Our redeemed bodies can hope for nothing but to wear out in, the weakness, in weakness and to break down and decay in the grave. So upon the basis, upon knowing the weakness of our hearts, John uh, affirms what is true, but he also shows us how we should live in the future. He, us, he utters the first imperative of his gospel. Though Christian people have entered into a great inheritance in the forgiveness of sin, fellowship with God, and conquest over, their, uh, over the evil one, their temptations have not come to an end. And so John writes to them saying, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, or as you might notice, there's a little note at the bottom of your ESV, the pride of possessions, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Now, now let's start with John's command. Do not love the world. What does this mean? Well, John's not using world here in the same sense that uh, he does in John chapter 3, verse 16 in his gospel, where he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He's not saying that we, ha- we should have contempt for the created order. In fact, believers are still called to be good stewards of what God has given to us. We're called to delight in and take pleasure in what God has appointed to us. That's our inheritance. There is nothing inherently wrong with loving your job, your wife, she's in the world, your husband, he's in the world, uh, or your hobbies that God has blessed you with to enjoy. One of my favorite passages, I think I've shared it with you before, is Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, because that is your portion in life. Gifts and portions are from God that we're, that we're called to enjoy. So it's not contempt for what we find in creation that is given for us to enjoy. Rather, when John talks about the world here, he's talking about that which stands in opposition to God. It is the moral and spiritual impulses that determine how people live. At its root core, it is different. It is the life of human society as organized under the power of evil or the order of finite beings as regarded apart from God. And thus viewed as a people and something created by God, they ought to be loved with redemptive love, but viewed as that which stands in opposition to God, as that which is inherently evil, it must not be loved in such a way that one participates in sin. Where viewed as a whole, the basic desires of the world flow, uh, that f- and, and what flow from it are antithetical to God. The basic desires of those who are from the world, therefore, are not from God. Rather, their impulses originate from sin, and those impulses are a means through which to exalt human life rather than to enjoy and magnify the name of our Creator. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? The world stands in opposition to that. It's to to glorify man and enjoy himself forever. And so John elaborates after this on three examples of what it looks like to love the world. He says the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the desires of the flesh in view here are those things which may become the driving force of life, those physical needs that become a reason for which we do things on a day-to-day basis. Second, the desire of the eyes 
It, it refers to the tendency to be captivated merely by an outward show of things without inquiring into their eternal value. Contrasted with that which is eternal, it sits out to pursue and indulge in only what it can see, only what it can touch. It cannot look with eyes of faith and perceive spiritual realities, namely the hope of eternal life and that which in this life pertains to it. And third, the pride of life, or literally, the pride of possessions. This is confidence in our material possessions or social standing and status. It is confidence in what we have such that we forget our need and our dependence on God. I have a home. I have a car. I have a job. What do I need God for? I can do it all by myself. In sum, these three are the radical trust, reliance, and indulgence in what the world as the place where sin dwells, tells us is good and pleasing to the eyes. It's a focus on what a heart ruled by sin craves. Its focus is on what the eyes unopened by the Spirit can see. And its focus is on the acquisition of such things that we might boast in ourselves and put confidence in the flesh. We come to put our trust, our happiness, our joy, as we considered this morning, in our peace in these things. But Paul warns us against, or excuse me, John warns us against those In total, it looks for meaning, purpose, and peace in the radical embracing of what the world says is good, what the world says is pleasing to the eyes and good for food. Now, Judges 21-25 presents a very similar similar scheme. It says that there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, contrast this with what Philippians says. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, think on such things in the peace of God that passes understand, surpasses understanding will guard your hearts. And what is good and noble and honorable and true? Well, unlike judges who had no king, we have a king who sits enthroned among the cherubim, ordering what is good and right and, and noble and true. He sits enthroned in majesty. He upholds righteousness, justice, and equity. He tells you, as Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one says, your life is not your own. He tells you that you were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so this is different than the love love for the world, which seeks its own good. Love for God is opposed to love of the world. John John chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he is not able to enter the kingdom of God. What is born of spirit is spirit. And John 6.63 says, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. For the love of the Father to be in us, then, therefore, implies, it necessitates that His Spirit works in our hearts to reorder our affections after God. To think that one is able to love the world and the things in it as it represents all that is sinful and corrupt, is to presume that the Spirit of God, who works new life in our hearts, can coexist uninhibited, unchecked, unchallenged with a love for the world. Love for the world usurps love for a king. A king who tells us what's good. A king who orders our lives lives and asks us to be his ambassadors his representatives and his agents, both in the world and yet simultaneously apart from it. So to give your affections to that which is in the world is to seat 
something in the world on the throne of your hearts where Christ alone should be seated. The desires of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of possessions are like then what we see in Genesis chapter 3. You've heard me use the language. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. It's not God who orders life here in the world of Eve at this moment. But it's the devil. He tells her what is good. So I wonder, are we tempted to love the world? Do we find that our hearts are so often concerned for what is in it that we look to it for peace and for comfort and pleasure? Perhaps we look to it more than we look to God for those things. So we must be encouraged this evening, do not forget or overlook that which we are called to as those who have had their sins forgiven, as those who are instructed and guided by a king who sits in heaven. And so I want to encourage you this evening, dear church, do not love the world. The love of the Father does not happily coexist with a love for the world. It doesn't happily coexist with a love ordered completely and unhindered by that which arises from our sinful hearts. But we can be confident as well at the same time. That may sound scary. I don't want to leave you in despair thinking that because you struggle with temptation or find that you do love things in the world that you're lost. You're not, and I think that's John's point here. In fact, prior to this, he writes to them that anyone who says they are without sin makes themselves to be a liar and the truth is not in them. So he actually expects us to fail. He actually expects us to struggle against the weakness of our hearts and our gravitation towards the sinful things of the world. But we may know this, guilt, remorse, or a desire for godly things, these are evidence that the Spirit of God is dwelling in our hearts, reordering our affections that we might abide in the Father and put our comfort in that which is to come rather than in that which is passing. So we turn finally to the consolation offered. God does not leave us in despair without hope as you struggle against the desires of this world, but he offers you consolation. He says, and this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here is a direct contrast to the very things spoken of in verse 15 to 16. This is your hope, that this world is indeed passing away. There will be an end to this battle. You don't suffer this battle alone, neither. The same spirit that was with Christ in the wilderness temptations as he craved the sustenance of food is with you, he is in you, and he is for you. Why? Why does the Spirit of God dwell in our hearts? Because of verse 12 to 14, your sins are forgiven, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Moreover, he says, uh, rather, Scripture says, you have one who has gone before you that has suffered as you, you have. Hebrews chapter 12, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so I ask you, is it not of great comfort? Is it not of great comfort to us that we have one who has gone before you and that we do not suffer these things alone? Be what we are, is what John is saying. Be what we are. Be those who are forgiven. Be those in whom the word of God dwells. God has reordered our affections that we may abide in him and that we surely would in all that we do. And so we ought to set our eyes on eternity, brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
We ought to let God's will order our lives, and in doing so, we actually realize in this life the victory that we have over sin. And it is this knowledge that He has the victory that fuels our own pursuits of His will in our lives. And our hope, our hope in our battle is that one day this world will end. Our inheritance is where that celestial city is, where we will drink from the water of the river of life. We don't despair. The world can't offer us this kind of hope. It's not something that we need to earn or merit. It's not something that we need to strive for. He's called us to worship Him this evening, and He will send us out with that hope this evening as well as we go out into that world. If you're longing for peace, it's not found in the world. It is only found when you seek God on the throne of your heart. When you have contempt for the world, is that which is opposed to God, that you may actually come to have peaceful lives. It is in that place that your physical needs are rightly met and where they take their proper place and purpose. It is in that place that you have the courage to do the will of God. Here in this place, When God orders the things that we love, we shall find true security to live lives with peace and hope for eternity. Because the sweetest poison of the world is still poison, and all that glitters is not gold. And so the basic orientation of our lives is to serve and to love a king who has gone before us. And when we fail to do this, when we try to overcome the world on our own without recalling that we are already his, when we try to find peace in the world on our own, when we try to find answers to the problems that we have in the world and put all our hope and stock in it. We will find that we are chasing that which can never provide lasting peace, comfort, or hope, where even our most notable causes are like polishing brass on the Titanic. In a world where there are many different views and there are many different versions to believe in of Jesus, we have believed the right testimony of Christ. One where he does the work, one where he gives the strength for the command done, and one where he gives you hope for your obedience and your striving in this world. Let us be like David who turned to the Lord in prayer and say, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And let us take hope. I'm going to leave you with the the final words that B.B. Warfield wrote in the earlier quote that I shared with you. He writes, Our redeemed souls only slowly enter into their heritage, their possession. Only when the last trump shall sound and we shall rise from the graves, and perfected souls and incorruptible bodies shall together enter into the glory prepared for the children of God, only then is our salvation complete. Only then is our salvation complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we strive against the weakness of our flesh, against the uh, gravity of our heart towards the desires of the world, the pride of possessions, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, would you encourage us? Would you uh, continue to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you? Would you help us to fix our eyes as your apostles so often orient them towards what we hope for, what we long for in the resurrection, in the time when there will be no more sorrow or suffering, in the time where We won't live in a place that's passing away, whose foundations can be shaken, but we'll live in a city with foundations that cannot be shaken, and where our desire is to be with you in glory and worship your name and praise it all the days of our life. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in sustaining us. 
We ask that you would, in, you would embolden us this week. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.